Hi, I'm Tristan Miller, and you're listening to Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality between mental health and the arts. Today on the program, I speak with Alvin Irby, a comedian, entrepreneur, and founder of Barbershop Book, a nonprofit that is dedicated to increase literacy in black boys by providing books in barbershops. Here he is talking about being a lifelong learner. I mean, I think one of the most important things is to be a lifelong learner and to have a growth mindset. You know, we don't know everything. You know, even if you have something that you're passionate about, you don't know everything that you need to know to be able to execute on that idea, per, you know, uh, the best it could be executed. Um, you know, you don't know a lot of stuff. And so I think being open and to feedback, being open to learn is really, really important. And also, I think it can help fight feelings or sense of being overwhelmed, you know, because it's like, okay, well, you don't know how to do this today. But that doesn't mean you can't know more about it tomorrow. This program is brought to you in part by Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller for exclusive access to the rest of this season along with a bunch of other content about and for mental health. I'd like to thank you very much for listening. There are a lot of options for podcasts out there, and I appreciate you you choosing us. All right, let's get to this interview. Thanks so much for doing this. No problem, man. Glad I could be here. <laughs> yeah, uh, right on. Uh, so you're born, as you say, in one of the most dangerous cities uh, in the country, Little Rock, Arkansas, right? That is true. That is yeah. true. What was it like growing up in Arkansas? Um, you know, I, I would say that, um, you know, I had a small group of friends, you know, that I grew up with. And we had a pretty fun childhood, you know, that consisted of playing football in the street or playing basketball on in a hoop on the street or mm-hmm. um you know riding our bikes around the neighborhood you know um you know playing video games playing <laughs> playing cards uh yeah. I did gamble quite a bit as a kid <laughs> um you know my mom thought we were playing a lot of monopoly but the real uh-huh. money was under the board um <laughs> But yeah, I did roll dice and and play uh like I played a game called Tunk. Um mm-hmm. it, yeah, it's a type of like gambling card game uh that I learned and that I played as a kid, but I think after I lost like 30 or 40 dollars in candy money, I was like, you know, this gambling <laughs> thing is not for me. So I'm sure. fortunate that I learned at a younger age you know what you know what wasn't for me uh and so I didn't have an issue with that you know as I got older um but little rock was i mean i would say that um you know it was the it was the 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 um the crack ec- epid- epidemic right mm. um you know and the gangs were selling the drugs so crack and then the gang violence was was really just out of control um, in 93, Little Rock was the murder capital of the United States wow. per capita. So there were more murder, more homicides 
in Little Rock than in New York, Chicago, L.A. per capita. Wow. Um, and it, it was it was the gangs, man. It got so bad that there was a, a HBO a documentary called Banging in Little Rock uh, that came out on HBO about the, the gang violence in Little Rock in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that's not actually just a joke. Like, it's it yeah, actually... Yeah. I mean, it's funny because most people don't expect... When you say, I grew up in one of America's most dangerous <laughs> cities, they don't expect Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, yeah, not at all. Um, uh, yeah. So would would you say that like that forced you into like a, a level of preparedness and perhaps anxiety growing up with all this stuff going on? Are you think, concerned? I think that children are very adaptive. You know, mm. I mean, I think children certainly experience trauma just like anyone else. But I think that you know, like you know, we used to, we still had a childhood. We still played outside. We still did stuff. But if we were sitting on the porch and it was evening or it was nighttime and we saw a car that didn't have its lights on, mm-hmm. well, we didn't ask any questions. We immediately got down on our on our on our stomachs and laid down because we were like, maybe the, it's a drive by about to happen. Right. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't we didn't think about it too much because it was just a part of, um, I guess, our, our lives at that time. I think it's after the fact, after you leave, after you grow up or after you move that you kind of start to be like, you know, that was kind of crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, yeah. other people didn't actually have to do some of those things or they didn't experience some of those things. Um, but it, it wasn't, you know, I think sometimes people have this idea where they want to paint something all one way or the other, but you know, I had a, a a relatively, you know, good childhood, even with all that craziness, um, you know, going on. And I feel like my mom worked really hard to try and insulate us as much as possible. I don't think you can insulate any child from all the craziness that goes on. But she was certainly dragging us to church. It seemed like almost every day, um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, giving us less time to get in trouble, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um and you you have a TED talk about an organization you put together about barbershop books, but and the impetus for that was you switching classes, reading classes growing up, right? Well, no, I mean the impetus for barbershop books was really um, based on a on an experience I had in a barbershop in the Bronx. Right. So right, right. I was teaching first grade, right, and then there was a kid in the barbershop. Uh, while I was getting a haircut and he was one of my students, you know, and so yeah. him kind of just sitting there doing nothing and me being his teacher, me knowing his reading level the whole time. I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, he should be practicing his reading right now. I wished I had a children's book to give him, but I didn't. Um, but but what I will say about um, my experience in high school and being in regular classes where we pretty much weren't being challenged, right? You're doing spelling lists and reading short stories and then switching to a uh, pre-AP class where we're having to read novels and write book reports. It it really helped me understand the kind of, I don't don't know if, if you call it the political implications of reading, but I certainly began to think about kind of the way in which institutionalized racism plays out in schools and as it relates to reading. Now, at that time in high school, I didn't have this language to talk about Mm -hmm. kind of what I was observing. 
but I decided that I wanted to know more about it. So actually, my junior year in high school for a science fair project, I surveyed 200 of my peers to find out about their reading habits. Mm-hmm. And what I found out was that most of my classmates did not read for fun. If it wasn't required for class, they really didn't read anything at all. And so then my senior year, I decided to run for student council president. Well, no, my, the, my junior year, I decided to run for student council president based on the survey results. And then I designed a reading incentive program for my high school and, and uh, set up a, a, a meeting with the community relations manager at the Barnes and Noble in Little Rock. And they gave me a grant to implement this reading program at my high school. I never thought I would go into education and I certainly didn't think of myself as like a literacy advocate. But, you know, once I got to college and I started really looking back and thinking, I realized that I've kind of been on the path that I'm on for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and then you moved to New York for postgrad, right? Yeah, I or... moved to New York for grad okay. school to study for at Bank that. Street. Yeah. What was that experience like going from the Midwest you know, to... It was yeah. interesting. I mean, well, okay, so Bank Street was really white and so was Iowa uh, mm-hmm. and Grinnell uh, in many respects. So I guess that was very different from my high school experience, which was, you know, my high school is, I think, what, like 75% black or something. Um, okay. So, um, you know, I don't know. You know, it was my first time really meeting or interacting with a lot of Jewish people um, mm-hmm. because Bank Street has a really strong um, kind of Jewish, a lot of Jewish families, their children go there. Um, Bank Street has a graduate school of education, but they also have their own independent school, you know, like a private school. And so I not only, um, you know, was attending the graduate school, but uh, my first year of graduate school, I had a teaching assistantship in the Bank Street School for Children. And so I had an opportunity to kind of do my student teaching at this really progressive world, uh, glow, I mean, I guess world uh, recognized, um, you know, uh, independent school. And so it was really interesting to kind of just be learning, I guess, the theory, but then also being able to like immediately and directly apply it to classroom settings that were kind of created for that particular type of teaching. And uh, during this time, you you had a fair amount of stress and anxiety, right? You know, I mean, grad school in general is yeah. can be stressful, right? Um, yeah. But you know, working full time as an assistant teacher and going to grad school full time, uh, certainly, uh, and in a new new city, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I went from Grinnell, Iowa, which is even smaller than Little Rock, Arkansas, straight to, I mean, I guess I, I stayed in Little Rock for maybe a few weeks, but I literally started grad school in July. Mm-hmm. So I graduated in May. In July, I was in New York in grad school starting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was certainly a, a little bit of a, a culture shock to some extent. Um you know, just to be in New York, figuring out the trains, figuring out rent, fi- you know, figuring out all all of that stuff. Um, yeah, it, it was a lot of it was a lot of stress. But I would say that one of the things that maybe made it a little less stressful 
was that I was putting time into something I was really passionate about. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think there's a difference, right. When you have stresses that are not connected to things that are as meaningful for you. Um, and you and I know each other through comedy. When did you start doing stand up? So I started, I moved to New York City in 2007. I graduated from Bank Street in 2000 and, um, 2009. And so after I finished grad school, um, I was Googling myself. Uh, and there was a guy named Alvin Irby, the exact same name, who's a black guy. He's a comedian in uh, Minneapolis. He's from St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just like, I looked at some of his videos and I said, man, I'm funnier than this dude. I was like, <laughs> I need to show the world who the real Alvin Irby is. Ego. All ego. I hadn't. <laughs> right. And so I just was carrying that around in my pocket for a little bit. And I told someone, I was like, you know, I'm thinking about doing stand up. And they were like, oh, you should do the Monday open mic at seven o'clock at the Laugh Lounge. And I was like, whoa, they know all the details. I was like, this is a sign. Maybe I'm supposed to try stand-up. And so I went to this open mic that this person had recommended. And um, Nico White invited me to another open mic. And then I've been doing stand-up comedy uh, ever since. It'll be 11 years in in August that that I've been doing uh, stand-up. And so then, you know, all of my first jokes were pretty much about kids and stuff happening in the classroom or stuff from my childhood. Yeah, yeah. And um, so you've been doing it for 11 years. Has there ever been, like, times where you're like, no, I'm going to pack it in and I'm done? I don't I don't know that I've, I've had moments where I, uh, where I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do this anymore. But I certainly had moments where I was like, am I still funny or mm-hmm. am I funny? I mean, after you bomb at Mocha Lounge, you know, which is notorious, right? Uh, their Monday comedy night, you know, I had a I had an audience member one time give me the light. Right? <laughs> like and, and you and you think, wow, Alvin, that's really bad. Like somebody in the audience decided they had had enough of your stand up that they raised their cell phone and started waving it. And the horrible thing about Mocha Lounge is that it's not like uh-huh. it's a venue that has like a stage or anything. Literally, you're standing on the floor and people are sitting right in front of you on couches. So mm-hmm. when she gave mm-hmm. me the light, it was literally like right there in my face. <laughs> and, and and it didn't stop there. I guess other audience members shared her sentiments. So then some of the other audience members pulled out their cell phones and instead of it looking like a comedy show, it almost looked like a concert. Yeah. But, you know, there are moments like that. There are other moments where, where when at Mocha Lounge and other places where I took L's. And, you know, when you bomb bad, you know, it really can just make you feel defeated and discouraged. But fortunately, you know, every time you step on stage, it's a new opportunity right? To prove yourself, prove to yourself and to the audience um, that you're funny um, and that it's worth their time to listen to whatever it is that you have to say. And so I think uh, it's the same thing with teaching. No matter how bad 
your day was, no matter how crazy the kids got, um, each day provides you a new opportunity. And I think that, you know, in many ways, I think some of the experiences I had growing up kind of have helped me to kind of have that perspective about new each new day providing you me with an opportunity to kind of start over no matter how bad the day before was yeah um what sort of experiences uh were those that you're just talking about that led to that attitude well i mean so you know when i was so okay the summer after my sixth grade school year my mom sent me and my brother to live with our father in in Memphis, Tennessee. And, you know, uh, it was not the best year for me. My -hmm. brother was very wise because after the summer, he returned back to Little Rock. But instead, I stayed in, um, I stayed in in Memphis. Um, And and my stepmother um, was not a very kind woman. You know, she said really mean, you know, really emotionally abusive types of things to me. Um, and I didn't have any friends and I, I was, I, I got, you know, obese um, because I, I didn't play outside. I, I wasn't allowed to really go out and do stuff. She was not kind at all. Um, said a lot of emotionally abusive types of things. And my dad, um, I believe at that time was, was struggling with um, some type of substance abuse. Mm. My mom, of course, did not know any of this when she sent me there. Otherwise, she most likely would not have, um, you know, but, you know, I was there. And, uh, you know, so I was, it was, uh, it was, it was a difficult time. I'm I'm certain I was depressed. I think I've been diagnosed with depression, um, you know, but I think it was more just connected to the environment and the situation Mm -hmm. I was in less than like me just, I I mean, I guess the point is, or that I want to make is that I think any normal child under those circumstances would have been depressed. I think it would have been highly abnormal not to have been considering kind of um, everything that was kind of going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That totally makes sense. And you said you got diagnosed with depression. When did that happen? Well, I mean, while I was staying there with them, you know, uh, they um, made me go see like a psychiatrist or whatever. Um, you know, I was, uh, I guess, still getting into into a little trouble at school. Not a ton, but I was getting into a little trouble. Um, but um, yeah, I do remember that, that I had to go and, and speak to them. And I remember telling them, like, I know, hey, maybe I am depressed, but, yo, these folks are crazy. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah. like, you should, they need to be talking to somebody, too. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, so, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I, to be honest, you, you know, there are some parts of, of that year that are crystal clear. And quite honestly, there there are parts of it that are, that are really um, lost to time or or that are, are blur, um, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what kind of trouble were you getting into at school? I mean, mostly just like being disrespectful or being disruptive, mm-hmm. talking too much, you know, uh, thinking I was the class clown is usually mm-hmm. how adults like to describe it. Sure. 
you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, that that leads me to another question I had. Um, were you always funny? Were you always trying to make people laugh? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, since I was a kid, you know, there were a few impersonate, you know, impressions that I could do. Um, and, you know, I would do those. And, um, and I, yeah, I guess, you know, people thought of me as kind of funny. And, you know, I didn't certainly didn't think, oh, I'm going to become a comedian. I mean, I don't think that's something many people in Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, uh, think about. But um, I certainly... Um, felt like I was a funny person, you know, and I mm-hmm. felt like that's kind of how people perceived me in many, many ways. Yeah. Um, is, is it tough, tough being a, a black guy in comedy? Like, have you got any barriers there, do you think? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, what's frustrating is the lack of diversity at, at, in, in, like, some of the um, comedy clubs and things like that where like, you know, they might only want to have, you know, they might only have one black person on a show or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, Or, you know, it's frustrating when you go to shows and you're like, man, you know, I'm funnier. (laughs) Like I'm I'm significantly (laughs) funnier than some of these guys, Um, you know, uh, and yet, you know, they've been on late night or they've been on this, but I think that's something that maybe, you know, all comedians may say at at some point or another, Um, you know, but I think that, you know, institutionalized racism and biases, um, you know, racial biases, you know, those things um, aren't limited to any one industry or any one profession. I think, you know, it's, you know, it's woven into the fabric of our society and any career or field you you find yourself in. I think that, you know, the people who know, uh, you know, will have more opportunities. The people sometimes that people identify most with, they may think of them first or they may have them at the forefront of their head. But, you know, I mean, I, I honestly try not to think as much about the obstacles or barriers to my success. And I try and focus on um, the opportunities and Mm -hmm. or creating opportunities for myself. You know, I'm not the kind of person to kind of just wait around for something to come to me or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, clearly. Um, And you do a lot of different things. Do you ever like feel like burnt out? And how do you cope with that? You know, at the very beginning of this pandemic, you know, I, I, I definitely had a few off weeks where I was kind of just watching TV shows and watching movies and doing the bare minimum, you know, in terms of work and stuff. Um, I guess trying to find my bearings, you know, and dealing with the uncertainty. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, eventually I snapped out of that and, and kind of um, started being more productive and, and getting stuff done and everything. But, um, um, yeah, I, I do a lot. I, I do a lot of stuff, but I also, I, 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 I'm fortunate that I actually mostly spend my time doing things that I actually, that I, I, I love to do or that I'm passionate Mm -hmm. about. So doing stand up 
you know, I mean, maybe there are instances where it feels like work or feels like a chore, but for the most part, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, and you know, running a, a an edu- a nonprofit, right? Um, certainly uh, has you know lots of you know stuff that has to get done that I wouldn't necessarily characterize as fun, but. Yeah. I, I created my own nonprofit and I'm actually able to act on my passion to help, you know, uh, black boys read. Um, and so for me, even when I feel the most frustrated or the most overwhelmed, I still feel fortunate that I get to wake up every day and put my energy into something that I created, something that I'm passionate about. And I just know that there's so many people that um, can't say that, you know, who aren't in that position. And the same thing is true uh, when I was in college. I remember having a 15-page paper and being on the first word and thinking, oh, my God, why is this page blank? And why do I have to write 15 more of these things, right? But then I would say to myself, you know what? There are people back in the hood who didn't have the opportunities you have that even if they were sitting in this chair, they, they didn't have the preparation that would allow them to be successful Mm -hmm. in this particular situation. And so suck it up, you know? Um, But I think that's, uh, that goes back to perspective. Right. And I think that that year in Memphis, you know, there was a, there was some really low points, like really low points during that year um, where I don't know, some people call them come to Jesus moments or whatever, but there were definitely moments where I had some conversations with God and I was just like, Hey, I promise if you take me out of this situation, I won't curse no more. I won't be bad no mm-hmm. more. You know, and I was, I was pleading with God, just like, I promise, you know, um, and you know, there were definitely even moments where I, um, considered, um, you know, taking my own life, you know, it was, it was really bad. It was a really bad and dark year for me, uh, that one year. And it was in seventh grade, but, you know, kind of the, the, the light at the end of that tunnel, because I didn't have any friends, because I didn't really go outside much. I had a whole lot of time to think about Mm -hmm. myself, about my life, about a lot of things. And I feel like I gained some insights about life. I gained some insights about myself that altered my life's trajectory significantly. And so for that reason, as bad as that situation was, I'm so thankful that it happened because I really might not be the person I am today. The drive that I have, all this stuff that makes me who I am, you know, that year was was also um was also a part of it. But I would say that the the kind of mantra, you know, or, or way of thinking. And it may sound really, um, I don't know, it could sound perverse or, or, or negative to some people, but I remember concluding during my, during that, during my seventh grade school year that, um, that, that I didn't deserve anything and that no one deserved anything, you know, and I, and I, and I thought about, you know, so many different people in the Bible, and just people in life who they didn't do anything to anybody, but some bad stuff happened to them. 
Mm-hmm. And I was like, they didn't deserve that. And I was, and there are people who were born into rich families or born into things that gave them a leg up in life. And I was like, well, did they deserve that? I was like, well, no, they don't deserve to be able to, you know, have food and have a good education any more than anyone else. And so I was like, well, you know, according to the Bible, you know, and, and at this time, I think, you know, and I think that during difficult times in people's lives, you got to hold on to something, you know, yeah. you got to find something to anchor yourself, to keep you tethered to reality, to world, to your sanity. And I think that the Bible did that for me at that time. And so I'd spent a lot of time reading the Bible. But what I concluded is that according to the Bible, everyone was a sinner. And according to the Bible, everyone who was a sinner deserved, deserved death. But according to the Bible, Jesus died so that other people could live. And so I was like, all right, well, Jesus was perfect. And look what they did to him. Like he was just trying to feed people, clothes, feed, clothe people. And they just killed him. And I was like, yeah. If that's what happened to him and he was perfect, who am I to think that life should be easy? Mm-hmm. And so from that point, I said, you know what? I don't deserve anything. And every opportunity I have, I'm going to try my best to make the most of it. I'm sure. going to try and look at the bright side of things. I'm going to try and, you know, I don't think I would have said be an optimist or anything, but but that was the idea that I kind yeah. of concluded was that if I don't deserve anything and I look at everything that I have, I have a lot to be thankful for. And I think that, that those aren't the kind of thoughts that I think the average seventh grader no. is pondering, yeah. but you, you'd be surprised what you might ponder if you're alone. Yeah. You know, and the Bible... You know, it has all kind of crazy stuff in there. <laughs> that, and, 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 and not even stuff that even some of it would be appropriate even for a seventh grader to be reading, you know. Do you still uh, consider yourself a man of faith? Is that still your core? I, I would say that at my core um, is um, a belief uh, in God. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that you know, I, I really think that, you know, me traveling the world and meeting so different, so many different people, reading so many different things, I've come to believe that there's more than one way mm-hmm. to, to like navigate this thing called life. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, through my life experiences, I've just gained a greater appreciation for how other people make meaning and how they navigate life. And I, I don't think that my level of religiosity is anywhere close to what it was before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly believe in God and, um, you know, I, I really try and do right by people, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm certainly not a perfect person, but you know, it matters to me that like, it, you know, that I do right by people and that I try and, um, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt, um, and that I look for the good, you know? Yeah. Um, so I would say that, you know, and I do, you know, because I went to church for a long time and I have lots of people that I know, uh, from the churches that I've gone to. And so, you know, I'm still friends with many of those people. Um, but I did make a conscious decision a few years ago that instead of putting time, energy, and effort into church, that I, decided, you know, you know what, I want to put this 
energy and time into this passion that I believe God has put in me, which is inspiring children to read. That, uh, that absolutely tracks. Since you were spending a year with your father and your stepmother, that I, I assume your parents got divorced. Yeah, and no, my, my dad left at, um, I think I was three. Hold on. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think I was, I was three when he left. And my mom had three kids and he just left, he just left the city, just went to a whole nother city somewhere. And, um, and she, and while, while being evicted, you know, so he hadn't been paying the note and she found out and he just left. And so she's in a house with three kids being evicted. Three yeah, young sounds... children, you know, and so yeah. she's a elementary school teacher. You know, I can only imagine, I can only imagine the level of stress and frustration that something like that does to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't imagine how stressful that would be. And also, do you think like, I assume it was stressful for you as a kid too. I mean, as a kid, you know, you don't really, you don't really, I mean, especially you're three or five, mm -hmm. you know, you don't really, um, you don't always understand and know what's really going on. You know, oh, mm -hmm. we're moving, you know, like, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and good parents do a good job of trying to help um, shelter you from the worst of what is, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, my mom did the very best she could, you know, to really provide us with a healthy and and happy childhood, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you think your passion for uh, black boys and their literacy and improving their lives comes from recognizing that you, some, you had some issues in your childhood? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I just... In high school, when I learned the 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 difference in rigor between these regular English classes where they were students were just reading short stories and doing these spelling lists, and then all of a sudden this other tenth grade, you know, advanced class where they're reading novels, I was just like, yo, why is there a difference? And why is the reading expectation so different? And I was mm -hmm. like, this something is wrong here. And I think like, and I didn't read for fun, but I was like, you know what? I don't want other people to be controlling what I read. And mm -hmm. I began to understand that if people can control when and what you read, no, if, when, and what you read, then they can control you and to some extent. And so I viewed reading as freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, freedom to realize my full potential, um, freedom to be who I'm supposed to be, freedom to pursue the passions and ideas and other things that I have. Um, and I wanted other people to have it, yeah. that freedom. Yeah. Um, do you still deal with uh, any bits of depression you know, as an adult? Not, not really. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, I, I certainly deal with stress. Um, mm -hmm. I certainly have moments where I might feel like I have no idea what in the world I'm doing. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I also am fortunate to have people in my life who encourage me, inspire me, push me. 
um, and hold me accountable, right? When I'm not being my best self, mm-hmm. um, you know, but, um, you know, I will say that, you know, when I went to, when I went back to grad school, so I got a master's in education from Bank Street, but in uh, I th- 2013, I went back to grad school and I, I did a master's in public administration at NYU. And uh, that was that was stressful. My first ye- my first year, I was working full time as an education director uh, at a nonprofit while taking classes in the evening, and it definitely took its toll on me. And um, I remember, um, you know, during one of like a financial management exam. I remember having a severe uh, anxiety attack, or I guess from the test, test anxiety, where mm-hmm. my heart started beating out of my chest. You know, like, I, 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 it was almost like a temporary, like, I don't know, like it was like I could hear my, my heart beat in my head and yeah. it seemed like every single sound was amplified. I could hear people talking. I could do everything but focus on the test. Mm-hmm. And I ended up not finishing the test. I ended up flunking the test. And I told the teacher, like, you know, I think I might have had some type of, like, anxiety attack or something. And he suggested going to the mental health center. And, you know, what was interesting is that, you know, I had made a 2.9 the first semester, right? Because I had made, like, a C in a class. Mm-hmm. And it took my GPA below a 2.0, I mean, below a 3.0. And in grad school... If you make below a 3.0, they put you on academic probation. Oh, wow. And so I didn't think anything of it because I was just like, well, I'm sure the next semester I'll, I'll, I'll be all right, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but what ended up happening is that that next semester I had that test anxiety thing. And, you know, I ended up going to the uh, mental health center, explaining what was going on. They prescribed something to me um, for anxiety. Um, And then, um, and they also gave me extra time and a a separate testing area. Oh, wow. Right? So it was like a room that was quiet. They gave me earplugs. I think there were only like maybe one or two other people in the room. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a lot of people and they gave me more time. And I remember the lady asking me, you know, the psychiatrist or whatever, like, she was like, oh, would you like more time? And I was like, more time? She was like, oh, more time to take the test. Like we could give you time and a half or we could give you twice as much time. And I was like, well, no, no, no. I was like, no, I remember this is what I said. So I was like, um, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll take more time. And she was like, well, how much more time would you like? And I was like, well, how much more time can I get? And, <laughs> yeah. then, and that's when she gave me the breakdown. And I was like, I think time and a half sounds good. You know, yeah. like I need like a whole like, um, but we can just assess the situation mm-hmm. and circle back. Um, and my, and, and I did actually start to perform better on the test. Like I actually kept above, well above a 3.0 the rest of my time in grad school Um, But it just made me wonder, oh, but here's the thing. After that second semester, because I made a C in that one class because I had bombed, I got 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 an email uh, saying that 
my financial aid was being rescinded because I had made, I'd had below a 3.0 for two semesters in a row. Oh, and boy. so that I lost my financial aid and they said that I owed, I don't know, $22,000 or some ridiculous amount that was, you know, you know, when you hear something so crazy, all you can do is laugh. Uh, right, yeah. I saw a $22,000 bill and I just started laughing. Maybe I was having a breakdown. I don't know. But that number <laughs> looked really hilarious to me at the time. And fortunately, because I had gone to the mental health center and documented the test anxiety, I was able to actually do a, um, I was able to challenge that decision uh-huh. based on like a, a, a health Like I was, you know, a health challenge to the decision and they reinstated my, um, my financial aid. But I remember when I went to the Dean and I told him, Hey, I can't afford to take a semester off. Like I, if I have to start paying back these student loans and all of this stuff, I'm probably not going to finish grad school. And his advice to me was, Oh no, no, no. When I told him this, his advice to me was to take a semester off. When I told him I couldn't pay Mm -hmm. this, and I was like, and that's when I explained to him, I was like, dude, I don't think you understand. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have anybody who can, because after that first, um, that fall semester, I decided, you know what, this isn't going to work. So I quit my full-time job and was just doing grad school full-time. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I um, took off from school, I didn't have a job. Yeah. So, you know, I was like, yeah, okay, talking to this guy is not going to help solve my problem. And that was when I figured out that I could do a, I could um, challenge the decision. But my thing is, the dean of whatever, he should have been exploring those options. But again, this is where I don't know if it's just insensitivity, a lack of cultural competency, or what it is, but... I think that there are some people in certain positions who really don't understand the realities of, of certain students. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know that it was a, a race thing. It might have just been a class thing. You know, I don't have I don't have a my mom, you know, was a, on a fixed income, a retired teacher in Arkansas. So yeah. her sending me money for New York rent is not an option <laughs> yeah. at all. Yeah, uh, at all. The stuff that they gave you for the anxiety, did you take that and did it help? No, I never took it. Yeah. I just use, I think I have an aversion to taking pills because that year I stayed with my dad, I -hmm. had to take pills every day and they would watch me and, and, you know, like, let me see your tongue type of thing. And then when my grandma helped me escape, I, um, I had withdrawals and I was, I I was, I had, I had to be rushed to the emergency room, um, because I was, I mean, I thought I was going to die. Uh, I was feeling really bad, really, really bad. Um, and so, you know, when I see these movies with people addicted to, I don't know what they're, you know, drugs and them trying to get off a of heroin or trying to get off of whatever they were on. I certainly was not doing heroin. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. were prescribed drugs, but, um, but, but I don't even think I was really supposed to be on 
what I was on or the strength of it or whatever, but there was something really fishy, even just about the medication I was being forced to take. Um, and, um, but, but that, I think it, it has left some trauma where I, I don't, I don't like taking medicine unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, and honestly with the type of supports that they provided me, um, things improved and, and, and I didn't deem it, deem it necessary. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm not against it for people who certainly, um, you know, find it valuable. One of the things that that experience in grad school made me think about is what about all the other students who didn't go to the mental health center, who didn't document some of the things that are happening and who ended up having to leave. And I'm like, how many other students have had to leave college because they didn't have they didn't have support or the colleges were not effective at communicating the services that they provide because I'm sure that some point during orientation they might have mentioned something about it but I've never been diagnosed with any type of learning challenges or test anxiety mm-hmm. or anything like that so if they were talking about the mental health center, it probably just went over my head. Like I was like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. And it, you know, yeah. um, so I think that there's more that colleges can do to to make not just the content more relevant, engaging, but the way they communicate it more relevant and engaging and especially to vulnerable student populations. So I'm thinking about first generation students who are suffering from um, imposter syndrome, right? Where they feel like they're not even supposed to be in college. They're like, how did mm-hmm. I even get here? Um, people who are dealing with, you know, things like um, what's called stereotype threat, which is a, a psychological theory about how uh, certain minorities, uh, you know, can take on certain stereotypes and it will affect their their performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all kind of different types of things. And I just think that you know, colleges, universities can and should do a better job of communicating the ways in which they can support students um, and, you know, destigmatizing things. Because I think culturally, you know, a lot of first generation students, a lot of students of color, you know, they want to prove that they belong. Right. And so sometimes seeking help may you know, make them feel as if somehow by getting help, it means you're not supposed to be here. Whereas, you know, here's an example. I had a professor in grad school at NYU. He said, Alvin, I was surprised that, you know, you didn't come to my office and talk to me about your grade. And I was like, I made a B. I was like, I could, what, I could have just came to your office and talked to you and got a a higher grade or something. (laughs) Like, I didn't even know that was an option. But apparently, I guess there were students who talk, they're in college and grad school. There are students who go to professors and ask for extra work to get their grades up or to get an A. And I like, it didn't even occur to me. Like, I was just like, I worked hard. I got a B and I got a B, mm-hmm. you know, but, but, but again, class, right? Oh, you know, they're. You know, maybe there are parents who know that and who would, you know, my mom never went to grad school, right? And she went to college in the 70s. So, you know, I 
anything I was doing as it related to education and college, I pretty much, all my applications, everything for financial aid, everything I pretty much have had to kind of, I mean, I've asked people, I'm sure, maybe people I know or something, but, you know, it's kind of been me. You know, I haven't had, Mm -hmm. you know, necessarily anyone in my family to kind of, well, you know what, that is not necessarily true. Um, not so much with college or grad school, but I do have a cousin who's super dope. Um, he's a director of diversity for a large nonprofit. And, you know, he's he's been a great support um, to me in my journey as a, as a nonprofit leader. And if I ever have questions, you know, related to just stuff related to leadership or, you know, any of that kind of stuff, I can call him. But, you know, he's more like an uncle. He's my dad's cousin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, as I was going through a lot of the stuff I was going through, you know, he you know, he was more after the fact. Like, after yeah. I, you know, moved to New York, we started to connect a lot more since he lived in D.C. and eventually moved to New York and that sort of thing. But, you know, there are people who have parents in their lives who have all the answers or who can just help them with the rent or just, you know, whatever, like you were talking about in comedy. Going back a little bit, you you said you, your grandmother helped you escape. (laughs) I did say that. I did say that. Well, you know, my stepmom was like, you know, you're not going to be bouncing between Little Rock and Memphis, you know, back and forth. You're going to spend your whole school career here until you graduate from high school. And I said to myself, well, that's what I'm not going to (laughs) do. And so I was like, well, I just want to go back to Little Rock for the summer. (laughs) And, you know, I I don't know if they weren't, you know, I don't know. Uh, And I just threw as much of my stuff as I could into garbage bags. And my grandma uh, drove me back to Little Rock. Um, This is my dad's mother, who I'm very close with. You know, my dad really was not in my life much at all, except for half a year in fourth grade when I went to live with him. Yeah. And then seventh grade. So mm. I guess fourth grade was season one of Scared Straight. And then seventh grade was 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 the second season. Um, mm-hmm. After the second season, I was like, listen, I am on the straight and narrow I don't need any more um, seasons of scared straight. I am scared straight. I'm on this straight and narrow. So after I returned back, I didn't really get into too much trouble. I mean, you know, a few little scuffles or things here and there. But for the most part, I was, um, you know, staying out of trouble. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Are you do you still talk with your dad at all or is he still pretty absent? Yeah, no, he really I mean, he's alive. Um, and, um, I believe he lives in Arizona, but yeah, we really, we really don't, um, we really don't talk much, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to even know, you know, what to talk about, you know, when mm-hmm. like so many of the moments in your life, you know, now his mother was there for everything, every graduation I've had high school, grad school, everything. Um, and I do check in with her, you know, every month and things like that. Um, but it's a challenge, you know, I mean, I don't really hold any animosity, you know, toward mm-hmm. my dad, you know, um, I think that 
I think a lot of adults are dealing with unresolved trauma themselves. Yeah. Things that they haven't been able to overcome or to treat or to address. And it ends up manifesting themselves. You know, just because you have children doesn't mean that, you know, the hangups in your life or the, the, the past traumas that you've experienced somehow go away or the ways in which they manifest themselves in your, your adult life disappear just because you bring a little challenge, you know? And so, you know, I, I, and I think the same is true of my mom and probably a lot of other parents is that, you know, life is not easy, man. And if you're a black person, I mean, my mom grew up in Forest City, Arkansas of one of her and her two sisters were the only black kids at her school. And so, you know, I remember her telling me about every day, almost kids running to the other side of the hallway saying, I don't want that black to rub off on me. And like, Ooh. can you imagine every single day yeah. having to experience that level of like hatred and racial trauma? That stuff cuts deep, man. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I don't think that I even know the half, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so there are a lot of people out here just trying to do the best they can with the skill set that they have. Um, and I'm forever grateful and thankful to my mom for, you know, laying a foundation for me to become who I am, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very positive spin on all of it. That doesn't, well, hold on. That doesn't negate or, or somehow, um, reduce the you know any type of negative behaviors you know just because yeah. an adult had negative things happening in their lives that by no means justifies um, sure. their mistreatment of of children. Um, but I think that you know as an adult looking back on my life, you know I think I I have a different lens, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly you know it can explain things if not excuse them. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And when they first brought you to that psychiatrist, like, was that like what it was that experience like as like what a 12 year old, 13 year old? Well, see, I don't know what my dad and my stepmom, what their thing is with like getting like treatment or whatever. But when I went there in fourth grade for half a year, mm -hmm. they put me in a day treatment center because I was getting into trouble in school. Um, you know, having lots of, um, you know, angry fits and things when people would make me upset. Um, but I don't, I don't think that, I think I just needed more love, like, yeah, right. More experiences. I think here's the thing. I did not read as a child. If somebody would have been taking me to the library, I think I would have been the kind of kid that probably would have been in my room reading. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I think that some of my behaviors may have been me not having constructive outlets to kind of channel a lot of my creative energy. Um, and, and, and so it just ended up coming out in ways that were destructive or not constructive. Um, but yeah, I don't know what their deal was with drugs because they definitely made me take pills when I was there, even for half a year. And they put me in this this um well first i was going to a regular elementary school but then they put me in a day treatment center um and that was that was interesting like when i went there yeah you know i really learned that there are kids dealing with some real issues i mean a teacher just said you know 
Johnny, you know, please have a seat. Now! Why are you talking? I'm like, whoa, Johnny, whoa! Like, how did we go to zero to a thousand? All she asked was, could you... And so, you know, and they used to have, you know, metal detector checks and... I mean, it was a day treatment center, so it was like kids who weren't able to handle regular environments. But I think also being there kind of just made me just be like, whoa, like, okay, this is not where I'm supposed to be. Like, this is a Mm -hmm. different type of thing. And I I really don't know. I really don't know how. I don't I I don't know how it was that 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 I ended up there, but I'm I'm pretty sure that my it was my stepmother who researched, advocated for me getting institutionalized, or it was a day treatment, so I didn't spend the night, but she mm-hmm. was the one who did that. And the same thing happened in seventh grade where there was an incident where I was uh, accused of, of uh, you know, um, pushing some kid down in an alley or something after school, and it was completely false. I was never even there, you know, but there were witnesses who supposedly saw this happen And instead of my stepmom kind of being like, oh, you know, hey, you know, let's investigate this more. She just was like, I'll handle it. And she took me down to juvenile and had them put me in handcuffs and lock me in a cell, like for real, like in a holding cell at juvenile. And I just remember thinking about how perverse it is that people entrusted with loving and caring for you could so easily disregard you in that way. And it, you know, and my, my dad, you know, many parts of this, you know, he was really um, very passive and, and to some extent out of it. You know, he yeah. wasn't fully present. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, sorry, I'm just processing what you said. That's a lot to put on. Oh, I, I concur. I agree. <laughs> It was a lot for me as a as a twelve year old or however you old you are at seven. I mean in seventh grade. Yeah. That's a lot. Do you like find yourself carrying that with you? Like the idea that someone can just like shuffle you away and like I mean, maybe that's why freedom means so much to me. Yeah. And the ability to be able to control my own life and control how I spend my time and how I, um, you know, move through life. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that I've connected that desire to to a particular moment. Um, And I don't even know that I think about it all that often, but all those things have made me who I am, Mm -hmm. you know? And so as crazy as it it was, and I certainly wouldn't wish any of the stuff that I experienced, um, you know, on anyone else, but at the same time, I'm thankful for it because who knows? You know, people people see people sometimes and they make assumptions about what their life must have been or who they are or, you know, for them to be able to do this. You know, they must have had this or this or that. And you just don't know. You really don't yeah. know people's lives. You don't know their experiences. You don't know their trauma, <laughs> you know. Um, what would your biggest piece of advice be? for someone who's trying to do similar things to you, whether it's uh, like some sort of advocacy or comedy? Um, I mean, I think one of the most important things is to be a lifelong learner 
and to have a growth mindset, you know, we don't know everything, you know, even if you have something that you're passionate about, you don't know everything that you need to know to be able to execute on that idea per, you know, uh, the best it could be executed. Um, you know, you don't know a lot of stuff. And so I think being open and to feedback, being open to learn is really, really important. And also I think it can help fight feelings or sense of being overwhelmed, you know, because it's like, okay, well, you don't know how to do this today, but that doesn't mean you can't know more about it tomorrow. I had never created any type of a website or anything, but when I created barbershop books, it needed a website. And so I created a website. Uh, it looked crazy, but it was a website and I created it and it grew out of necessity. But also the fact that I was like, I'm not going to wait around for someone else to do it or, or whatever, you know? And so I think that, you know, you don't have to know everything about something, but you can learn more than what you know right now. And I think that you know, having that mindset and being willing to, to grow um, can, can help a lot, um, you know, because when you feel like you have to know everything, right, or that you don't know everything and you feel like you should, I could easily see how that could lead to, you know, counterproductive thinking and immobilization, really, mm-hmm. you know, if you're waiting around to learn you know, you don't have to learn everything you need to know. Just learn enough to get started and keep learning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Talk to people who can help you, you know? Yeah. Right on. Well, that's all I need on my end. But if there's anything else you want to say before we wrap this up, feel free to do so. Well, if people want to learn more about um, me and my work, um, they can visit my website, alvinerby.com. And if they want to connect with me on social media, um, it's uh, at Alvin Irby on most um, social media platforms. Yeah, you got there before the other guy. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been absolutely wonderful. Oh, talk no to problem, you. man. Thank you for having me.